Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I'm joined again by my good friend, Flag Taylor, for yet another conversation in our long, long series of movies on totalitarianism. We have specialized almost in this. We also talk about nice movies now and then. We even have happy ends occasionally. But we have done many movies that deal with our shared fascination with totalitarianism in Central and Eastern Europe. And today we will be talking about Uchitelka, The Teacher, a movie from 2016, a Czech production filmed in Slovakia based on a true story that happened in the 80s in Slovakia in the capital, Bratislava. The director is Jan Hrebek and his writer is longtime partner Petr Jarkovsky. They have been writing together for decades. Hrebek and Jarkovsky were nominated for the Oscar for the Best Foreign Film in 2000, I think it was, for Divided We Fall. A wonderful story that Flag recommended to me and I enjoyed very much. In fact, we might want to do a podcast on that one too. And now they are reunited for a movie that also deserved Oscar attention, which is about late totalitarianism. Divided with all was about the beginning of terror and tyranny, about the Nazis, even before communism came to Czechoslovakia. This is about the end of that era, about the 80s, about a tyranny that no longer has that much evil energy and doesn't have any conviction anymore anywhere. This is not ideological in any active sense. But the power of the tyranny is still there, and you can see, especially now that the violence is largely over, the wounds it has created morally, the corruption it has created into people, and how evil becomes a a way of life, of accommodation, of little miseries that are threatening, nevertheless, to stifle the life of a new generation, because this is a story called The Teacher. It's set in a high school. These are teenagers who are going to be preparing for adulthood and life. And of course, we know it's set in 83. In 89, communism was over. And all of those people from this true story, after all, had lives afterwards. They lived in democracy. They lived under a capitalist system. They were no longer terrorized. There was no more tyranny. There was no more communism. But of course, in 83, they didn't know that. Part of the baffling and heartbreaking thing is to see five, six years before communism was over, what an aura of inevitability, ubiquity, invincibility it had the sense it was a destiny hanging over every man, woman, and their children, maybe ruining their lives or their public hopes or reputation, or making their conversations in the apartment or in the bedroom miserable. It's at times very funny, it's at times heartbreaking as a story, which is pretty common for Czech stories in our experience. And uh, we're happy that this one has a happy end because communism was over. But it's also very sobering. It has a kind of moral seriousness because it shows how people who are decent can be corrupted and how few really wicked people it takes if they have the shrewdness to realize where people are weak, where they are afraid, where they can be convinced that by doing evil things, they are in fact very moral. And all of this stuff comes out in the teacher to a backdrop that is musically often very funny and to a setting that is somewhat theatrical and very clever. As a period piece about the 80s, it's amazing. I grew up with these things and I can tell you that the way people dressed, just the fact that this is Bratislava, say not Prague, so people are poorer, everything is, as people would say, more backward or more countryside, not city. This is true. The film itself is not filmed widescreen, but closer to a 4 to 3 TV ratio so that it feels like something that people would have seen in the 80s or, I guess, 90s on TV, not a modern picture. 
the acting and the mannerisms and, of course, everything from things like ideological communist etiquette about addressing one another to all sorts of old-fashioned things. Like you said, somehow communism froze as in amber the mores of a country that was still rather countrified. To some extent, these people in a modernist, communist, brutalist uh, metropolis are behaving as though they're in a village. It's fascinating and it's very true to life. So it's just very well written and acted. And even the montage, I mean, the director, the way he sets up what's happening to the teenagers who are students here by day and what happens by night to their parents who have been summoned to this very important meeting. All of it is so credible and yet to some extent funny because of montage and very clever. It shows uh, an attempt to not only bring back ordinary life and nostalgia in a sense, since these were people's lives, but to orchestrate it in such a way that you can see dramatically what is morally and politically at stake. Of course, this is very much the tradition of Czechoslovakia, I guess especially the Czech side and especially Prague, which is a city of theaters. There are so many theaters, you would be shocked. And in fact, we can safely say that Czech nationalism for 200 years now has been tied up with the theater. And of course, Czech freedom since the 1960s and Havel. So the dramatic aspects of the movie, the staging, all of this owes a lot to that tradition. Of course, this is too long. I'm sorry for such a long introduction, but I think our American audience needs a a kind of introduction to what everyone in Czechoslovakia or Central Europe more broadly, perhaps, would simply recognize and appreciate quietly without needing to state any of these things. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I know this movie because you recommended it. Flag, thank you very much. How did you run into it? How did you feel about it? Yeah, I, uh, I don't remember how I stumbled across it. I think I just saw a list of on some blog, you know, 15 or 20 Czech films that you have to see and, and found it there and, and looked it up and it wasn't available for a while. And then uh, I managed to check Amazon Prime Video. I think it's IMDb will let you watch movies for free with, although there are a few commercials. So that's how I saw it. And yeah, I, I was immediately struck by it. Maybe what I'll do here is briefly give a synopsis of the film and then just say a couple things about the historical context, and then we can dive into some of the more interesting characters. So the movie is really about a single meeting uh, where parents are summoned to meet with some school administrators. At the beginning of the film, we don't quite know why. We know that the parents have been summoned to discuss the teacher who is not present. And so the action of the film really just takes place over the course of this one meeting, which is probably, a ha- I don't know, I would guess a half an hour long. It's a short meeting. And then the film slowly unravels the story, how the parents came to be summoned to this meeting. And we meet Maria Dresdakova, this teacher, and we discover that she has become very adept at manipulating the parents of the children in her class and eliciting favors from them. And in return, she gives good grades to the students of the parents who are willing to do these favors. The story focuses on three children in particular, Carol Littmann, Philip Binder, and Danka Kucharova, all of whose parents in one way or another refuse to do these favors that they're requested to do, or at least they're a little standoffish. And so we we see these three children in particular are punished because the parents refuse to do these favors. So it's a really interesting story about moral corruption. And as I said at the beginning, we're not quite sure about the extent of the corruption at the outset of the film. So one of the striking things the director does is almost wading into a really filthy swamp 
at the beginning, it doesn't seem too unpleasant. And then I just felt like as you get into the movie and you see more of what is going on with how this woman is manipulating these parents, you just feel filthier and stinkier and you're just more disgusted as the film goes on. So that's the basic action of the film the context. So this is the era in Czechoslovakia known as normalization. Normalizace was the term that the party itself, the Communist Party, used to describe what it sought to do after the Prague Spring. And so in the early 70s, about a million to a million and a half party members were expelled as a result of the Prague Spring. These people were summoned for interviews where they were asked if they believed, if they approved of the fraternal assistance of their Soviet brethren, right? And there's one answer to that question, you know, yes, I'm, I'm happy that our Soviet brethren restored order. But if you, you know, if you weren't willing to say that out loud, your party membership was either canceled or you were outright expelled. And the result of all this, really the only people left in the party were really corrupt careerist types true believers are not prominent in the Communist Party after this point. And so you see that in the film that the people who are high up in the party bureaucracy, so this teacher happens to be the highest party representative at this school. And so she's in a position of power to manipulate people. We also know that her husband has been killed. He died in the war, but he was, you know, something of an important military official, we gather. And then she has a sister in Moscow. And so she's some important connections and is really in a position to impose her will. And so, yeah, I guess that's the main thing I would say about the normalization period, again, is this contrast between the spirit of the totalitarian order in the 50s, which was full of enthusiasm, kind of militancy, harsh punishments, you know, people were sent to uranium mines for crimes, you know, long labor camp sentences. Havel uses the term post-totalitarianism for the 1970s and 80s, not because it's after totalitarianism, but because the totalitarianism took on this more gentle form. There's no enthusiasm. There's no militant excitement. It's just this feeling of strident bureaucratic numbness where people go along and get along, do whatever is asked of them because they know if they do that, they're guaranteed a kind of quiet life. So people mouth these slogans that they no longer believe in. Havel uses the example, right, of the shopkeeper who puts up the sign, World of the Workers Unite. You know, Havel says he doesn't believe in the content of the slogan, but he just does it out of basic routine and habit. The film does a really nice job of bringing out that bureaucratic, just numb, kind of disgusting atmosphere. Um, by contrast with lots of other films about communism, right, the scale of this movie is so small. You don't have the sense that they're big Cold War stakes. You know, there's no reference even to the Prague Spring, any of that. It's just about this meeting at this school. So it's this discussion of communism at this micro level, what it would have been like to live in this world just for the average person. I mean, these people, none of them are particularly wealthy. One of the children who gets into trouble's father is a mechanic. We know that he's being punished, Mr. Binder, because he punched a party member who was hitting on his wife, right? So he's been forced to work as a kind of cleaner or a mechanic. Another one, one of the main characters, uh, Mr. Littmann, the father of Carol, his wife emigrated. I think he's the most interesting character in the movie. She turns out to have been a talented scientist. And so probably, I don't know for sure, but I suspect she was at some international scientific conference. She probably got you know, a visa to go abroad for some meeting and just didn't come home. And, you know, he doesn't hold it against her. We can get into the details of his life. But of course, he's punished for the fact that his wife now demonstrated herself to be an enemy of the party by emigrating. So that's the plot normalization. That's the basic kind of historical context. Where do you think we should go next, Titus? 
to begin with, I'd like to talk a bit about how the movie did. This was a very big success in Slovakia at the national awards there. It also did well at the Czech National Film Awards. Actress Susanna Maurari, who plays the teacher, Maria Dazdrekova, she won a prize at Carlo Vivari, the big movie festival in Central Europe. So it has done well here, and I have every confidence that it will have a legacy, that it will be everywhere people watch TV or stream, or it will show up in a repertory cinema whenever Jan Hrebeik movies are shown. And presumably it has been shown around the world through Czech Institute events or embassy events. It's a part of public diplomacy, after all, not just of confronting the communist past. But also, just as a business, this worked. They paid less than a million dollars to make this movie, and they got about $2 million for their efforts. While being able to show this movie around the world from Cleveland to Tokyo in a dozen or more festivals, I'm very sorry that it was not in competition in the Oscars. It's a mistake I feel, but what are you going to do? But even in America, it's available, although it had a very limited release since it wasn't successful enough in theaters. Variety reviewed it, the trade papers in Hollywood reviewed it, something like that's as far as it went. It's a strange thing that liberal America got more attention of it than conservative America did, when conservative America has a lot more reasons to care about this movie, not just to enjoy it, but we'll leave that part of the discussion for the ending. For now, that's all I wanted to say about this business aspect of things. It was a successful production, not just because it's such a clever and well-made movie and so enjoyable, and so Czechoslovak. It's because it's a good business, it was profitable, it was public diplomacy, it showed around the world, and it has some lasting power in a way in which most successful movies don't, actually. So I'm quite confident that unlike, I don't know how many blockbusters, years from now, people will care. I read somewhere, for example, that the Oscar Library, you know, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, AMPAS, requested the script of the movie and it might be remade in some way. There's a future. Now, as you were saying, the movie seems to be a perfect expression of the kinds of things one reads about in Havel, in The Power of the Powerless and so forth. These were essays that attempted to describe in somewhat intellectual terms, but in a way approachable to any intelligent person, what it means for people to become morally corrupted without realizing it. Yeah. What it means to lose your moral agency, not to be made to be evil. This is not about how you create murderers. This is not about radicalization or God knows what. This is about the loss of agency. So mm-hmm. not exactly vice, but weakness. To speak like Aristotle, I mean, just read Aristotle's ethics, gamma, you will see there a discussion of choice that will drop your jaw. What might it mean to say that we always aim at the good? Well, it might imply that you have to realize that we might lose our ability to even aim at anything, to act. We might lose our ability to make choices and we'll no longer be, in a certain sense, human. You can read Aristotle, you can read Havel, and you can compare it with movies like this, and you will see this is the truth. It's not a truth we like to confront, because when we say morality is essentially about choice, about the freedom to make choices, we assume most of the time that our choices are our own at any rate, and they cannot be taken from us. And so the movie shows precisely because, as you say, it focuses on a suburb where there's this school there, a high school for kids. It's not a big deal. It's a small deal. And you never escape the confines of the lives of half a dozen people. And you see maybe a dozen other people at this PTA, parent-teacher meeting. And it's not a long movie, it's 100 minutes. From every point of view, very much constrained and focused. And yet it does reveal that this is typical, that what has happened to these people does not strike them as strange or unusual because they see it everywhere. Right. 
parents. And so the movie, in a sense, is about this conflict between parents and their children. To educate your children means to educate them to be human, to make choices in an intelligent way. Well, how are they going to grasp what is good? And how are they going to understand what it might mean to think ahead, to deliberate, to act, and to understand the consequences and to deal with that? Here you see not just the education of the students, but the education of the parents. There is always a political education going on in every community. By the way we deal with each other, we confirm or destroy or weaken various habits and various beliefs. Hence the staging of the movie that shows you by day, students go to class and by night, it's the parents. All of them are being educated in a certain way. And of course, we, the audience, like the audience in the theater, have gone there in the evening, so to speak, to see what's happening, to be part of this, to see it all, if possible, children and parents alike, and to understand ourselves that we are receiving a kind of education, to scrutinize our own motives and our own circumstances, and to ask to what extent are we able to make choices, to what extent do we dare, when we sense that something is wrong, to speak up about it or to do something about it. Yeah. I'll just read a quote from Havel that sort of gets at this normalization ethic that develops and perfectly identifies the human type that we see in uh, Mrs. Drazdekova, the teacher. So this is from something that he wrote before Power of the Powerless. This is his first very public act of dissent. He wrote a letter to the general secretary of the Communist Party in 1975, Gustav Husak. So this was just an essay that is now called Dear Dr. Husak. Near the beginning of this letter, he writes, in view of this, it is not surprising that so many public and influential positions are occupied more than ever before by notorious careerists, opportunists, charlatans, and men of dubious record. In short, by typical collaborators, men that is with a special gift for persuading themselves at every turn that their dirty work is a way of rescuing something, or at least of preventing still worse men from stepping into their shoes. Nor is it surprising in these circumstances that corruption among public employees of all kinds, their willingness openly to accept bribes for anything, hence the teacher, and allow themselves shamelessly to be swayed by whatever consideration their private interests and greed dictate is more widespread than can be recalled during the last decade, right? So Havel witnessed this moral corruption, this narrowing of one's horizons to naked material self-interest. What strikes us about the teacher initially is that, as you suggested, she's not corrupt in some dramatically evil way where she's committing you know, murders or doing things that shock the conscience in a powerful and obvious way. You know, she's asking people to fix her washing machine, gets parents to do a little shopping for her, you know, these very minor things. But again, as you are drawn into the movie, you just, the disgust kind of rises in you and you're just, ugh, how can this woman use these people and manipulate them in such a way? Now, the other question is, you brought up the question of moral agency, right, is the, the movie raises the question, well, what makes people decide that they need to opt out of this system? And so you have these three main characters. It's pretty clear why Mr. Kuchera opts out, right? His daughter is the one treated most poorly amongst all the students, right? She openly calls this poor Danka stupid in front of all the other students in the class. You know, she gives her failing grades repeatedly after, of course, the father refuses to act out her bribes and eventually pushes this poor Danka, you know, to almost commit suicide. So there, right, the resistance is really just, I need to defend my kid. The other two main characters, right, it's even a little more complicated. Young Philip gets into trouble because he wants to protect Danka. His father sees what's going on, decides he's not going to participate in it, refuses to fix this woman's washing machine. But he doesn't have as much at stake as the Kucheras do. But he has this sense of justice, right? He just thinks this is wrong. I'm not going to participate in this. And then the last person, Mr. Littman, 
he's even more interesting, right? Because his son is actually treated quite well by the teacher. Although I guess I should modify that by saying that uh, when, when we see him enter the class, she talks very openly about how his mother was a traitor for leaving. So she kind of shames him in front of the class, but she says, it's not his fault. You know, we, we need to treat Carol well, but nonetheless, he is not punished in the way these other students are. Nonetheless, we see him deciding to try to opt out of this system, I think for reasons made more explicit at the end of the film, which we'll get to in a minute. But I just wanted to sort of bring out the question of moral corruption by talking about how these different characters experience the corruption differently, and I think resist it for different reasons. So the movie is very subtle in that way. Yeah, this triangle of characters, these three families, beautiful. The first family, the Kuchara family, is, I think you, we would say, the ordinary middle-class family in Bratislava. They are better off than most people in Slovakia, but that's not saying much. He is an accountant in the airport, so that's a white-collar job, you could say. Mm -hmm. uh, he goes around in suit trousers, in a shirt, in a cardigan. He dresses respectably. His wife is less on respectability, but she teaches gymnastics, and you see that her daughter has gymnastic talent, and there are scenes again and again about this, because gymnastics was such a big thing, and of course so was ballet in Eastern Europe. I was born in Romania, where we all knew that Nadia Comaneci was the greatest gymnast in world history. It was a part of the national pride. We did not have much to be proud of in that generation. And so I completely understand what this stands for and what it must mean to people. But also, if you're not big on gymnastics, just seeing these girls move in this beautiful way and at the same time, how playful and in a way, I mean, it's, it's gymnastics, it's pretty silly stuff. All of this makes it so charming that you wonder, how could people let this happen? How could they let this innocent girl suffer this way, be driven to madness, and have her family in a way torn apart? But they're the middle-class family. The wife has a kind of strength of character that the husband doesn't quite have, which is also, of course, more practical, more get along. He's a weak guy, but he does not want to be pushed around. He does not want to be trampled. So they're ordinary people. They don't have any virtues to speak of until they're pushed hard enough. And then you begin to see that since they can't turn on each other, they would be devastated to do that to each other. And since they realize ultimately they need to save their daughter, they also realize that they need to save their dignity. And that's what makes them stand for something like a middle class. And you can expect that their experience and their attitudes as revealed by crisis are descriptive of what made it possible for Slovakia to have a post-communist future, to not have been fully broken by communism. The other two families stand for different things, as you suggested. One of them is a tough guy, blue collar, this fat guy, the mechanic. Former who, wrestling champion, we should and, say. And he's a wrestling champion and a wrestling <laughs> teacher. And, and he's quite charming as a guy. But of course, he also has an, a certain ugliness to him. He's violent. We see this guy beat his son, not just teach people wrestling. Indeed, he was condemned to jail for violence. He has a reputation but he has been thrown out of society. Nobody's afraid of him because he could beat them up. All of them despise him because he's in a lower class than they are and because he has been condemned by the party. Somehow it has drained his manliness so far as people are concerned. And now and then his wife looks at him with the same contempt these strangers do as though he were no longer a real man, much less her man. But he has not lost his confidence. You see something in this animal manliness, in this willingness to be violent. He never thought that he did the wrong thing to beat up this communist guy who was humiliating his wife. He stood up for his own. That's the beginning of freedom. As indeed, if I can refer to Aristotle's ethics again, the first virtue is manliness, because without it, you do not have any others. 
and so he's absolutely necessary to the plot. He, yeah, he's, he's the first he's, one in the film we see actually to stand up to the teacher. Um, exactly. In and uh, he's also the only one who has such bad manners that he says nasty things. And when people want to throw him out of places, he says, no, make me. And, right, yeah, and the when district, he wants to know that something yeah, yeah. bad has happened. And again, this is in, in a certain way a bad guy. He beats his children. Now, of course, in uh, Central and Eastern Europe, this does not shock as in America. America is a different world where if you spank your child, you're in the wrong social class and it's a terrible thing. But if children are drugged on a national program for ADHD, then that's morality and productivity. But still, even in Central Europe, it's something shocking to see this man take his belt and beat his children, which I promise you happened in millions of homes in Central and Eastern Europe. The film is very clear about the fact that there is a connection between that violence and his virtue. He's stupid, granted, but when he understands what's happening, that his son is being humiliated for trying to do the right thing, his son stepped in the father's footsteps. He also is getting his career ruined by helping a woman out of noblesse oblige. These people are so vulgar, they actually believe in being chivalrous, where no decent or educated person would do that. Yeah, a hilarious contradiction, but shows like these people believe in nobility. Right. And they're the only ones in the movie. And it's quite impressive. Madness comes across very well. Without this guy, the plot does not work. And the the movie insists on this. You need somebody who is brutal enough to just go ask people painful questions about what's happening or else everybody hides their secrets because the secret to being humiliated is that you believe it's your fault and you know it's your fault and nobody's going to really change your mind about that. And so you hide it out of shame. Yeah, one quick thing, just in connection to these two characters that we've been focusing on thus far, that I think the movie does something interesting with them. You brought up the relationship between uh, the Cucheras. It's interesting, right? He's the one who resists initially, I think, because he knows he might get himself into trouble at work if he tried to smuggle the cakes on this plane. You know, he doesn't work around pilots. So initially, his resistance is based in the fact that he's a kind of rule follower, I think, rather than based in any principle. But I think over time, he becomes more principled. And as you said, the wife is practical and she just suggests to him, look, we just need to make this woman happy. Let's do something that makes her happy and allow Danka to flourish. It's no big deal. Like these little compromises are are not such a big deal if we think about the grand scale. And then you brought up Mr. Binder, his wife, right, is of the same mind initially. You know, let's just fix the poor woman's washing machine. You know, she doesn't have a husband. We're supposed to feel a little bit sorry for her. She lives alone. It's kind of a sad life. You know, what's the big deal by doing a few favors? But in both cases, you see the stridency on the part of the women. They make explicit arguments. Let's just do X and get ourselves out of this mess. But then they turn on a dime, right? And it, it sort of the movie shows you something interesting that even when people are mouthing these arguments, you kind of understand that they can't quite believe what they're saying. And it really comes out in the scene with Mr. Binder and his wife when she is being emphatic and saying, no, fix the woman's washer. And then five seconds after she finishes that sentence, it's like, oh, you're doing the right thing, right? And then they, they engage in some, some romantic involvement. Uh, shall we say, but it's it's a sort of beautiful scene because you just, again, it sort of shows you that when people are strident and trying to enunciate some principle, sometimes that's actually a sign that they don't quite believe what they're saying, right? The stridency is a signal that they can't quite act on the principle that they're saying. And, and if you just poke a little harder, they can be pushed to do the right thing. So again, the film, I think, does a nice job bringing out that, I guess, moral complexity with how people change their views about what's right and what's wrong. That's wonderfully put, Flag. It's a very good insight that anger often reveals the shame of realizing that one is wrong, that 
one is unjust even. So we see, I think, something typical. Again, this is probably illegal in America, but in Europe, it's perfectly fine to say. Men are more principled in the sense that they are also stubborn. Women are more malleable in the sense that they are also better able to put different things together to see a bigger picture, less single-minded or less simple-minded. And this bears out throughout the movie. The women are always better at intrigue, but they are also better at putting two together and being prudent. But the men are better at being blind or when they see something, sticking to it, sticking to their guns, to use a cowboy phrase. So this happens in all of these cases. In the middle-class family, the Kuchera family, we see that, you're right, this guy's kind of a rule follower. He's just an accountant. He doesn't want trouble. And he thinks things should be done the way they should be done. It's fair. He doesn't like this notion of being asked to do something that is illegal and might be borderline espionage, sending international packages illegally. People wouldn't do that with airline pilots in America, much less in a communist country where there's always the threat of a secret police. He realizes that he is being asked to do something that is crazy and he doesn't want to do it, but his wife encourages him to do it because she sees the point. It's quid pro quo. And if you think about it, if you've noticed, you see other kids, other parents, you begin to build a picture. He is completely blind to that picture. And so it's much easier for him to resist and to say, this is wrong. And this woman is a bitch. And what the hell are we doing enslaving ourselves to her? Because he doesn't see the consequences. He doesn't see the problem. Indeed, he is inclined, like a father's art, to punish and therefore to take his daughter out of her gymnastic classes to focus more on school as though the problem were that the girl is not smart enough or hardworking enough when the problem is that the teacher is a tyrant. The men have their good and bad as do the women. In the low-class family, the Binder family, this is true again. The man's reaction is to punish his child because he's failing in school. It's the same principle. It's the kid's fault. Only later does he understand that, no, the kid was chivalrous and noble and trying to save this girl, just like he did with his wife, because he learned from his father. And there you see the father punishes his child out of a sense of shame that my child is not like me. It's my failure somehow that he has failed to be like me, to be good. But when they realize that their children know they have been brought up right, then they realize that they have to fight for these children. Yeah, And that uh, they've wronged their own children out of political correctness, as we say nowadays, because they can't believe that there might be somebody who is wicked, just counterfeiting reality. And that's the point. It's not that anybody believes in the communist ideology, it's that it shows you how the communist ideology works. By starting from ordinary experiences that are pre-political, things like gossip, what people say, what they might make you believe, you can come to suspect your own children to believe that you are yourself wrong in your own household. This deception reaches into people's lives and threatens to sunder the love between parents and children. And it's quite effectively dramatized. It's understated, but it's very impressive. That's true in a way in the case of the third family you mentioned, which is the high-class family in a certain sense, the Littmann family. You see that these are gentler people, more sophisticated. The son is an artist. He's a good draftsman. He draws things and impresses people with that. The father is an astrophysicist. This is the only example we have of a learned man, a man who, in order to be self-deprecating, says that what he does is just mathematics. This is not considered contempt among most people. (laughs) It would pass for bragging. He's just an awkward man. And as you said, he has lost his wife. She is now a traitor to communist Czechoslovakia. How? She must have defected, as you suggest, at a scientific meeting. And he says about her that she's just the best in her field. I can't really fault her. There you see excellence. This woman had a touch of genius and in her country should have been ruined. And yeah, she abandoned her family. Not forever. She's trying to get the kid back. But she had to do this. She felt that there was an opportunity and indeed an imperative. 
a woman's willingness to sort of break with procedure or reputation or even law has led in this case to defection. It's an extreme example. Compared with this daring wife, you see the man does not have any of the tough virtue of the lower class man. He's soft all over, not a gentleman. He's just gentle. He never thinks ill of anybody. He tries to gently suggest to his son not to talk evil, even about this tyrant woman. He's a pacifist, you could say. And in a way, he's the most hilarious part of the movie, because whereas this tyrant teacher always extorts service and goods out of people, makes them her slaves. In his case, she wants to marry him and raise his child. This other side of communism, what it would mean for this sort of power and ideology to simply take over your home. And he finds it difficult to resist. His son is disgusted with this notion that this teacher comes to the home and tries to sweet talk the husband while saying that his mother is a monster, traitor, evil person. But you see, because the father is so gentle, the son becomes harsh. He realizes that pacifism will not work. There's something impotent in this gentility. To be so educated, to be so sophisticated, to try to see the good in everybody, you end up denying that such a thing is evil and therefore condemning your own child to it. That's the only case where you see a real sundering of the relationship between father and child. That, in a certain way, is a fitting because he does not have the love of his own that the other two families do show. He's part of a kind of elite that is not able even to defend itself. His gentleness is, to a large extent, applaudable, and it has allowed him to go with good grace from being an astrophysicist to receiving this sort of political punishment for his wife's transgression. He's paying for her sins, so to speak. He's been demoted to window washer. And of course, this is also a remark about the dissidents in Czechoslovakia who were thrown out of their jobs in large numbers and who were forced to do everything from window washing to stoking the furnaces to night shift cleaning jobs in the city. They were humiliated in this way, reduced to an underclass existence almost. Yet, like the man in this movie here, they did not lose their dignity or their confidence. They didn't have the kind of anger that turns in on oneself. They didn't begin to hate themselves for their failure or their punishment. There's something virtuous in the man's gentility, but he lacks strength up until this political movement. If you allow, since we have been talking about drama and Havel and we've been talking about the studies of late totalitarianism and post-totalitarianism, you could say that the action of the movie over a night, the principal of the school and her adjunct have called in the parents to have a meeting, to have a society, and they have to sign their names to a complaint. You could say that this is a poetic rendering of Charter 77, of the act of these people to put their names to an accusation, to a public denunciation of an evil regime that does not live up to its own law about civil and human rights, which exposes all of these people and their families to punishments. Yeah, the movie begins to really pick up steam at a certain moment, probably about halfway through during this parent meeting, when one man steps up to speak, who is not one of the three main families who are behind this petition. We learn that his wife works, but he must have a medical condition of some kind, so he doesn't work. And he says, look, I've been asked to go you know, shopping for this woman, and I did. But I think there's something wrong with this, because he says, none of us really know how our children are doing at school. <laughs> so he says the, the so-called quiet part out loud, right? That no one really knows, you know, how talented, how intelligent, how hardworking any of their children are because it's all driven by this corruption. And immediately the district judge, maybe the highest powered guy, right? Says hypocrite. 
right? Which is how the system is maintained by the constant charge of hypocrisy, right? You're just as much a part of this system as anyone else. How dare you speak up? But it's a nice moment because, you know, hypocrisy is sort of the lowest form of vice. I was reminded of the great line in, uh, in Metropolitan when someone accuses Nick Smith of hypocrisy for sleeping with someone and he says something like, that's not hypocrisy, that's vice. You know, <laughs> he sort of dismisses the, the charge of hypocrisy. And, and the same thing happens in this movie. This, this poor invalid guy says, uh, yeah, I'm a hypocrite. I'm not denying that I did this stuff, but it doesn't matter that I'm hypocrite. It's still wrong what I've been doing. And it's shielding us from what we should all want, which is genuine knowledge about how all of our children are doing in school. So this very meek, again, kind of an invalid guy says, I want to sign the complaint as you suggest by sort of recalling the kind of the town aspect of this meeting, this is a kind of public thing. And that presents difficulties for lots of people because they're not used to acting in public. They don't want to act in public, both because they can be punished, but also just because they haven't been habituated to being seen when they do things like this. But nonetheless, this kind of changes the dynamic in the room and and more people start speaking up. At this point, Littman leaves the astrophysicist. He goes to the bathroom and an STB officer who's been sitting in on the meeting, right? He's sort of monitoring the whole thing. He wants to make sure Littman isn't going to sign the petition and and uh, make some threats. And so we see Littman walk outside to what we think is to go home to get on a bus. But nonetheless, he comes back in the room and says, I want to I want to sign. And that sort of leads the the snowball to get bigger and bigger. And we start to see more people willing or at least show some interest in signing this petition. But again, the movie does this very skillfully. You're not quite sure what the atmosphere in the room is initially at any given moment. And there's some awkward silences. And so it does a very good job of kind of dramatizing the difficulty of speaking out and sort of seeing people cowering before this district judge that is calling people hypocrites. And then the other moment, I guess the, the last thing I'll say that adds to the motion at the end to move people to seemingly become more interested in signing is one of the administrator says, oh, by the way, for those of you who are wondering about, is this woman actually a good teacher? Well, she's not. We know that if we look at her test scores from her students, you know, they're in the 15th percentile where the school average is about 50. And at that point, people, you could sort of see at people's faces like, oh, okay, this is, this is a problem. Yeah, there you see a fundamental thing about the system. To prefer some people for private advantage, you have to oppress everybody else. But as a result, the whole average goes down, the whole nation goes down. It's not like you have so much talent or virtue and you just reward the few privileged ones and the other ones get put down, but you keep a constant of merit, achievement, human power. Uh, No, the, the whole society is debased. And here they learn that this is what the teacher has been doing to them by feeding answers to some kids to get good grades, to impress their parents over against their parents' private services. Everybody has been debased. These kids might have been smart enough, but once they are fed answers, they're not really smart anymore. And other kids who are smart or aren't even that smart know that it's not really worthwhile trying because you can't achieve anything. It's what makes the movie such a beautiful illustration of what's wrong with communism and with this kind of political correctness that you know in advance what answers the teacher expects. You know in advance that if you say something else, or in some cases even stay silent, you're going to be punished for it. And you can no longer believe that this is a good thing that you're part of, and so you cannot try hard. You cannot strive to achieve something because you can no longer believe that the architectonic principle of education of society really has anything to do with truth and something you could call just a right distribution of honors and advantages. 
it is indeed a very telling moment in the movie and one of these few moments where you see that what is at stake here is not just a bunch of parents in a class in a school in Bratislava. What is at stake is society as such, ideology. It stands between you and reality and you can't even know whether your kids are doing all right. Even what you want at this most intimate level, I would like things to be good for my kid. And as you say, that means that at the same time that people are not able to act publicly. You see in this meeting, in this shy, tentative way, these scared people trying to speak up for themselves, trying to tell the truth about themselves, trying to stand up for their kids, and trying to hold each other accountable or to ask each other for help to behave more like a community that, again, reproduces this society under communism. The doctor and the judge are haughty, contemptuous, because they give the best gifts, they pay the most tribute to the tyrant, and so they get the biggest advantages they think. This is how narrow-minded they are, how narrow-minded their conception of the advantages you can derive out of the system. Yeah, I was going to say, that's the flip side to your point about kind of manly stubbornness, right? They show the ugly side of that, that they sort of decided to put their chips in with the corrupt tyrant and, you know, they can't, there's no sense that the doctor and the district judge are going to change their minds. Yeah, exactly. They know that lawyers, doctors have a special prestige. They have a certain kind of influence. They are in the top strata of society. And that makes them proud, even if they realize at one moment or another that they are part of an elite that is corrupt and corrupting. They can't stop. They can't help it. They can't change. They are not personally hurt like some of these other people. And on the other hand, their pride has been invested for too long in getting this kind of privilege at the expense of everybody else. That's what has formed them. That's their education. This is why they're on the side of a party in which they do not believe, even when they're confronted with things that should humiliate them and spark their outrage. Uh, But they have been too long, too contemptuous of their fellow men to ever step back and say, maybe I could have a common good with my fellow Slovaks, with my fellow Bratislavans, so on and so forth. That is disturbing and brings up this fundamental problem of the movie. This girl, who is fairly clever and she seems decent and she is quite a good gymnast, is driven almost to suicide. Her mother barely saves her, takes her head out of the oven, ends up in a hospital, ends up in a scandal. And this is what leads to action. Only when death comes knocking, only when there's a terrible victim, terrible sacrifice, can people wake up out of the ideology, at least for a moment. Yeah. Yeah, you see the difficulty, too, of the position of the two school administrators, the two women who are running the meeting. I think we get the sense from them quite early on in the movie that they know that Mrs. Drazdekova is not a very good teacher and she's very corrupt. They would like to get her out of the school, but they want to make sure their asses are covered, so to speak, and they get enough signatures on the petition. So they're kind of hedging their bets throughout the movie. And I think it's interesting that second, the woman who's second in command, when she puts those school figures on the board, you know, that's a real act of courage. She's taking a risk in doing that. She knows this STB secret police guy is there and um, she knows that Drazdekova is a you know party chairwoman. And so you see from the standpoint of the school officials, you see their weakness, but, you know, you also see them making calculations about how and when they can intervene and, and sort of use this petition of the parents to try to get this woman out of school. Maybe we have a little bit of different interpretation of of Littman. I mean, I think you're right that he's gentle, but I also saw him as maybe stronger than you did, very self-sacrificing, principled in a way, 
understands, as he puts it, that he, his wife, an astrophysicist, is a general, he's a foot soldier, sacrificed his relationship with his wife for the sake of her pursuing, you know, this excellence abroad. You know, I think he's lived a life of isolation in the aftermath of her departure, right? Because everyone kind of knows that he's now married um, to this woman who's an enemy of the state. So he's used to being alone. But I just don't, I'm, I'm, I think at the beginning of the movie, he doesn't really have a sense of the level of corruption, right? He just arrives at the school. He doesn't, I don't think we have the sense that he knows anyone. And I guess I had a less, uh, may, maybe filthier interpretation of Drazdekova's. I, I mean, I think she just wants sex from him. I'm not so sure she even wants marriage. I think she's basically propositioning him with those vouchers for the foreign goods stores. You know, he right. He, there is a great joke where she treats him like a male prostitute. <laughs> but yeah. uh, I mean, but she shows up at his house and uh, tries to cook him uh, lunch. Right? He comes home one day in this poor, disgusting neighborhood where he lives. There's uh, got some like a basement place. And finds this woman with all her privileges, making him lunch and inviting him borscht, to borscht and yeah. so on. And yeah, yeah, yeah. so, you know, it's different. I'm, like She's trying to take over his life. The son also sees that and complains to his father that this woman is trying to be my mother. And, and I agree with you that he's endured, right? There is a kind of strength that comes from passivity and ability to endure. Then, of course, he is principled. He will not divorce his wife because he loves her, but he will accept when she wants to divorce him because he understands she can sue for custody and take the child into the free world. Right. right. And if this means losing the only thing he has in his life, the son he loves and of whom he takes care, he does that too. It is a sacrifice more for him to make because he wants what's good for that kid. But he has no pride compared with him it's the son who screams and makes trouble and does things because his father won't except that driven to the point of humiliation he does sign along with it turns out to be maybe most of the class eventually they sign and Uh, he signs publicly yes exactly he does it publicly when most will only do it privately in hiding that's true he's not nothing yeah i i was just really struck by that performance that i mean maybe just the complexity of the performance the sign that we can kind of disagree about his level of uh you know how gentle he is how principled he is that there there's some there, there's some different interpretations that are available but he's it's a very understated performance i you know the the facial expressions that he shows you when he's in drazdekova's flat her reactions to him i think are, are a mixture of puzzlement and are you kidding me i'm not gonna i'm not gonna have sex with you you crazy woman you know so I really, I just thought his performance was really powerful. And again, not an easy performance to make powerful because as you say, he's very passive. So, you know, just as an actor, that's a that's a tough thing to kind of pull off, to kind of bring about the drama in someone's character in such an understated way. Admired the performance. His performance and of course the very applauded and awarded performance of Susanna Maureri as Maria Drasdehova are the most impressive in the movie. And they go together, not just in the plot, but so well. She is so aggressive and hides behind good intentions and moralistic sayings, all this tyranny she has worked out in the school. Whereas he is just looks surprised and uncomfortable at the world that keeps demanding sacrifices and piles humiliations on him. And it seems like each new one surprises him and he doesn't know if he's going to bear this one too. But, but somehow he's got the kind of grace to go through it all. It's a I mixture think. of sort of grace and decency. But again, I, I, I guess maybe this is the root of our disagreement. 
I guess I would say that his the nature of the sacrifices he's willing to make for his family, I think, cannot be understated. That one, that she would probably would have had to have had his approval when she decides, again, we're speculating about her, her emigration, but I suspect, again, it had to do with some scientific conference. I think they would have had to agree to that initially. And so that's a pretty impressive thing to agree to. And then, I, and I think you're right when you suggest that he's going to divorce his wife so that his son can go be with her probably in Sweden. I think it's what the film suggests at the end, that she's in Sweden somewhere. Again, would I be willing to kind of let go of the only source of joy in, in my life and watch him get on that plane? I don't know. So it just seems to me that there's an impressive courage in him that he's willing to sacrifice that much when most you know, most ordinary people, especially the given the people you meet in this room, right? You kind of think they're not, they wouldn't be capable of, of any of that. Yeah, that's certainly true. I agree with you. The sacrifice is unique in the movie. And somehow this private life of his that we learn about in flashbacks mostly confirms what we see in him that he is willing ultimately, although he is repeatedly publicly humiliated, to sign this thing in front of everyone when most of them wouldn't. So in a certain way, he proves to be stronger than most of these people. It's a public sign of his dignity. But as to the private things, I don't deny that these are unique and great sacrifices. I just don't think they're good. It, it is such a rich performance that you, you do come to all these things. You can notice them and then you have to judge, well, okay, but do you think this was right? Or do you think he should have gone another way? But you understand why is this guy doing this? It's remarkable how the script can put together what these people are doing in public at this one meeting that's brought the moment to its crisis, like the poet says, with, on the other hand, what you see in their ordinary life. You have to have a kind of humbleness as an artist to look at ordinary life in their ordinary apartments in this boring world, drab and gray, and there's nothing flash or flamboyant or impressive. There's no great success or historic achievement to be proud of. You have to have a kind of humbleness to look into ordinary life, but also kind of daring to see there principles of morality, of choice, of virtue, of dignity, that uh, to some extent are in conflict. The movie is not trying to say that at the end of it, all of these people who signed, they were identical and virtuous and the other people were identical and vicious. It's saying that there's a variety of people who do a brave thing and it can be such a situation that the toughest guy in the room and the softest guy in the room are the only ones who are willing to do this publicly. Yeah. And as you pointed out, the soft guy is the one who stands to lose something and who has actually gained privately because of this evil teacher. He puts principle above what's good for him. It's quite a sophisticated characterization. And I would say altogether, as I've suggested before, the real idea of a teacher in the school is for the parents, not for the children. And it's about democracy. This orchestrates a public deliberation and kind of reckoning with communism and asks whether Slovaks are able to deal with this. Will they be able to conduct their public affairs without giving in to humiliation and gossip on the one hand or on the other hand to the class contempt and the privileges that have accrued to a communist elite? That's what the movie ultimately is about. Yeah, the I think we, we see that the vast, maybe not vast, but there's a significant majority who signed the petition. They, they come into the 
private offices of the administrators to add their names. So I think initially you have four or five signatures, which would not be enough to have done anything to expel the teacher. But then we see the trail of people coming into the office at the end of the film, which is a striking thing, right? They need the kind of the privacy of the voting booth in order to do the right thing. And then I just wanted to ask you what, what you make of the of the end at the very end of the film, right? We flash to what must be 91 or 92 because you see Václav Havel's picture on the wall of the classroom. So we know it's after 89, but before the Czech Republic and Slovakia have split. And we see, who do we see at the head of the classroom? But Mrs. Darzdekova again. So now she's she's back as a teacher. And so what are we to, do we think that the director, I mean, I guess a, a real cynic might say, well, this is a sign that the director thinks nothing changes, right? Liberalism and communism are not different. You have the same horrible people in place in either system. I think, you know, there are a variety of interpretations. I, I suspect that, you know, he's just trying to suggest that these people don't, you know, lots of them don't go anywhere. They have no sense of shame for what they've done. So of course, they're going to try to get back I guess the other interesting detail is that uh, at the end of the movie, she does ask each child to stand up, state their name, and again, tell what their parents are doing. So maybe he's suggesting that the same sort of corruption is going to happen again. I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's a very interesting and funny ending. I don't think there's any reason to be cynical about it. I grew up in this post-communist world and I can tell you, of course, all those people were around. Of course, they would try to tyrannize people in any way they could. And that's a reality that must be faced. It's a movie that ends with Havel, right? the, the greatest artist and playwright of Czechoslovakia is now president. And that is the respect of the artist for this artist that helped make it possible for a new generation of artists to do these things. But you know, we're also a reminder of the necessity of writing these kinds of plays like Havel's. The evil doesn't just go away. You can win certain victories, but this doesn't mean that everything has transformed. Everybody who was alive in Bratislava in 83 was probably alive in 91 too. They weren't all transformed and the wicked people were still there and the habits of humiliation and deference respectively were still there. I grew up with these things. I hated this stuff. I cannot sufficiently express to you what salvific character unremitting anger has. It feels like it's the only way to keep your integrity. So I see no reason to be cynical about the end of the movie, but it is morally serious. A victory has been won. Democracy has replaced communism. These people are now capitalists, not slaves. As one of the characters says at some point, it's like a feudal lord. It is exactly like a feudal lord, but without any of the glory or splendor or honor or faith. It's yeah, worse yeah. than a feudal lord, actually. And it points, I guess the end too, just occurred to me, points to the difficulty of the situation in post-communist countries morally and politically Havel, on the one hand, is very unforgiving in the sense, I think in his first speech, January of 1990, rephrasing the words of his speech, but he said his first line is something like, you haven't elected me to lie to you. I'm not going to lie to you. Our country is in a lot of trouble. It's economically in tatters. You know, the environment is shit. You know, our school system is bad. Right. And, and so he's unrelenting in his criticism of how bad communism was. But he's also very forgiving in the sense that Havel is not someone with one exception that we might talk about in a minute. He never demonstrates any anger towards people. You know, the question that all of these countries faced is how to deal with former communists, right? And so they dealt with it using these lustration laws. This is different in different countries, right? Which in Czechoslovakia meant it was really only the high party officials, people high up in the secret police who were either explicitly punished or at minimum prohibited from serving in any high position in government. 
But it also meant that if you were a party chairwoman like Drazdekova was, you know, she's just like a local party official. She wasn't punished in any way. She wasn't prohibited from serving as a teacher after 1990. On the one hand, you might say, well, they should have done a much more thorough job of preventing people like Drazdekova from serving as a teacher in any form ever again. On the other hand, right, so many people are caught up in the system who are probably utterly decent, right? There are lots of party members who served in the party and, you know, maybe lived completely unremarkable and non-corrupt lives. Do you want to ruin those people in the 1990s because they, you know, agreed to be a party member at some point? And so it's a really, really difficult question with no good answers, I think. And as I said, I think Havel erred on the side of prohibit the bigwigs, the people who are at the top of the food chain who really were corrupt and did terrible things. But other than that, everyone kind of gets a pass. Yeah, that's a big question, illustration. Can you clean up the system? Can you get rid of the problems? And there was very little of that. I think Czechoslovakia had somewhat more than other Eastern European countries, but there wasn't much anywhere. And it had all sorts of consequences. I think the clearest way to understand the problem is to look at the extreme opposite, which would be lynch mobs. People in Bratislava whose lives were blighted by this evil woman, they just murder her in the street. Just a yeah. naked vengeance justified by these exorbitant crimes. There was none of that. And that speaks to national character. Czechs, Slovaks, they are not involved as a community and they are not involved in justice in this sense that they would take it in their own hands. Mm-hmm. There was no public demand for this sort of thing in the 90s in most places in Central and Eastern Europe. Some Some things were done institutionally, many of them would support or even pushing from the West, from NGOs, from governments, public diplomacy, etc. But there has never been some great show of national outrage or national shame in any post-communist country for what happened. Because too many people felt that they had been involved at some level or another, as you're suggesting. Above all, the capacity to act as justice, to speak in the terms of political philosophy for a moment. The constitution of politics, the separation that is of the public and private, is an act of the public authority. There was no such thing. This notion that you should act in a public way, which is decisive, and so instead of having uh, lynch mobs uh, murdering evil people in the streets, you would do it with processes of law and executions and just send people to jail for the rest of their lives. Yeah, it didn't happen. Yeah, in the, in the case of Czechoslovakia, they did not outlaw the Communist Party, which they did in some countries. So even up until very recently, the Communist Party in Czechoslovakia and then the Czech Republic played a pretty significant role. I mean, it never had a maybe higher than 20% in parliament, to my knowledge, or anything, but it entered into um, coalitions occasionally, which I don't know, it's sort of a shocking thing if you think about it. You know, It is yeah, shocking. And uh, you know, I'm happy that now I can tell you live from Prague that in the last elections, finally, the communists and the socialists collapsed. So I'm glad. But yeah, Czechoslovakia chose to the extent possible a kind of civil peace or at least civil tranquility. And that meant, of course, that all of this stuff was to a large extent swept under the rug. Now, I don't want to push this too far. It's a very important thing for the drama of justice in the movie and for the problem of justice in a country. There is nothing you can do to hide the fact that politics is what is done in broad daylight. The claims to justice that people make and enforce in broad daylight. You cannot forget this. You cannot excuse the shame. Like it or not, accept it or not, it will educate everybody's character and it will have consequences. 
so far for justice. But of course, the political infrastructure of a country is a somewhat more complex matter. And Czechoslovakia did certain things that had the effect of making a big separation between communism and the new world. More than in any other country, there was restitution of property to whomever and whatever could be restituted. This guy's apartment and that guy's factory or that other guy's hotel or whatever, if it could be, it was restored. And that meant that a lot of ill-gotten gains were lost. And it also meant that there was a public authoritative statement that property rights are real and that you cannot humiliate people in their private life, which depends on their property rights. So this was a big statement in favor of justice. And of course, all the reforms in law, all the reforms in the courts, that also had the effect of insisting, like this property rights issue, that the Czechs especially have had a strangely strong, I mean, for Central and Eastern Europe, understanding of property rights as essential to the rule of law, and therefore an ability to go back to the rule of law and construct a a serious constitutional democracy. So these things made a great difference. And it wasn't just for people, it was also for institutions. The Catholic Church, all sorts of Protestant churches, had a lot of property restored to them. That, again, was supposed to show that the ideas of who should be rich under communism and the naked rapacity had to be undone. These things had to be changed. You can't just say, now it's a democracy, it's different. You have to restore the property rights so that people's private lives can be established on a democratic basis, no longer on the basis that theft wins if you also have an ideology and a gun. Communism taught people even more than Nazism that crime pays. Might not pay for the local loser, it pays if you can rob an entire nation or hopefully a continent. Then you get away with it. Right, right. And so it was very important to take the means of robbery and the gains of robbery away from the robbers in as much as possible, institutionally and authoritatively through law. So these transformations in the early days of Czechoslovakia and the Czech Republic, these were very important to restore democracy and to remind Czechs, especially of their beliefs about property rights, about rule of law. Such things are very, very important. Of course, the movie can't do everything, it can't show everything, it couldn't get to these things, because it had to focus on this question of education and justice and deliberation as the true political, moral education of a society. So one has to understand its focus and therefore what it must leave out in the interests of art. Yeah, but at least it alludes to that at the end with, you know, bringing her back into the head of the class. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. It must show this. Uh, I have some Slovak friends. They do not say great things about Slovak character. I am not Slovak myself, and I know very little of Slovakia, and I will not say bad things about the people. But I can say this much. My friends would not disagree with the characterization in this movie, and it shows that these people are essentially peasants whose idea of morality is a village, mm-hmm. and hence the phrase, we must help one another. Yeah, uh, yeah. You, do, you do little services for one another, you, do, right. you help people. And if, if this guy is richer, and of course, he's going to have more pull, and maybe he's going to boss you around a little, or you got to be differential a little, but what are you going to do? He is bigger than you are. It's very small-minded in a way, and it shows you that, well, you know, it's, it's Bratislava. It's a metropolis created by forced communist urbanization in this yeah. horrifying <laughs> high-rises that take away people's humanity. What was left of their humanity? Their village habits. It was the morality of the countryside, which is absolutely unsuited for politics. It's necessary in any family. You cannot run a family on the basis of strict justice. You have to forgive a lot of stuff. You have to look the other way. You have to, somebody is wrong sometimes. You're the one apologizing, not them. Family is complicated in that way. But this is not fit for public. And so the movie shows that these people are not prepared for public life. 
They cannot step out of these family habits, these village habits of mutual help and deference and, and also gossip and intrigue, what have you, but which do not have any conception of the public and therefore of how certain authoritative beliefs have massive effects over everybody, even or especially over the people who think that they themselves are immune. I just care about my own private things. I'm apathetic to public things. So I'm also immune to public things. The right. latter doesn't follow. So the movie shows that these people were not ready for politics. They were not ready either for communist politics or democratic policies. It was never going to be easy to get them there later. Just because they are victims of injustice does not make them perfect. Therefore, they have to learn somehow. They have to figure out how to deal with political matters, how to learn to take justice seriously, starting from their ordinary family experience, but looking through education, the future of their children, the future of their country at the bigger picture to look in a way to understand what their national character is with its good and its bad. This is not a movie that aims to humiliate Slovaks, but it does aim to educate them. And therefore, it must show certain ugly things and certain critical things that people would have to take seriously about themselves yeah. to understand their own dissatisfaction. I've been to Bratislava. It is not heaven on earth. And people there do not behave like gods. They must be aware in some way that life is sometimes miserable and it's not a great situation. The movie only tries to make sense of why that is from the point of view of justice and to encourage people to bring justice closer to their ordinary parent-child concerns, their own yeah. ordinary family concerns, because that's where you can appeal to national character. It's a public appeal, but it's not through drama. It's a true story, but it is dramatized. It hedges between public and private between documentary and fiction at every step to allow people to learn a lesson and to recognize themselves without feeling personally humiliated. Yeah, there, there's just occurred to me, I have sort of one final point to make that I think Hrebek, the director, wrestles with both in this film and in the previous film, Divided We Fall, which I mentioned to you, the Czech language title, you know, is something like we have to help one another. I think he's wrestling with the problem of the recognition of injustice that the bad or the evil appears in the guise of the good a lot of our lives. It's difficult to see because you become habituated to the way that the bad, you know, wears the clothing of the good. So this phrase that he comes back to, we have to help one another, right? Again, you have this poor woman, Trasdekova, whose husband died. We feel bad for her. She lives alone. She lives this sad life. Is it really so wrong for someone to do a little shopping for her? Is it really so wrong for someone who's a good mechanic to come over to fix her washing machine, right? And so the movie draws you into this kind of world of corruption that looks quite innocuous on its face. So I think what he's trying to show you is that in order to recognize the good, you have to be attuned to the beautiful. <laughs> this sort of maybe I'm wandering into too deep philosophical waters here, but it just reminded me of this moment in, in Havel's writings. I mentioned to you that there's no anger in Havel. There's one exception to this. He writes this short piece called The Trial in the aftermath of the trial of this band, the plastic people of the universe, these hippie guys who are Frank Zappa fans and Velvet Underground fans, you know, who played music and got in trouble for playing in places where they didn't have a license. And so they were put on trial. Again, there are these young hippies and Havel and his elite intellectual class had no reason to pay attention to these guys. But nonetheless, their trial came to his attention. He went to the trial. And in the aftermath of the trial, he writes about leaving it and walking in a cafe in Malastrana and running into this film director who had done very well for himself. You know, he asked Havel what he was up to. And, and Havel said, I was just at this trial of these poor musicians. And the guy says something like, oh, you mean, you know, they're accused of, of uh, you, these guys who had drug problems. 
right? And, and Havel is immediately offended. And he says, well, it's not really about the drugs, right? I mean, they were put on trial because they didn't have their license and they didn't play the official nonsense communist music. And so Havel goes into, presumably, he doesn't describe this in the piece, but he presumably goes into this long explanation of, you know, what their fate was and why they were persecuted. And the guy says at the end, apart from that, what else have you been up to? Right. So he just dismisses this deep, corrupt, ugly thing with the wave of the hand. Right. And Havel sort of you can sort of picture him, you know, at this lovely street in Malastrana, just shaking with anger at this guy's inability to feel the ugliness. Right. And so he says at the end of this essay, Havel says, perhaps I'm doing him an injustice. But at that moment, I was overwhelmed by an intense feeling that this dear man belonged to a world that I no longer wished to have anything to do with. And Mr. Public Prosecutor Kovarzik, pay attention because here comes a vulgar word. I mean, the world of cunning shits. Only time, right, in Havel's writings where you see him attack, you know, someone in such vulgar terms. But again, I think it's connected to this point that Hrebeck is trying to make that you have to feel the ugliness of something in order to act according to justice. And so if you're not attuned to the beautiful, you're not going to be able to be sensitive to evil and good, right? And so it's a really, I, th I just think both this film and, and the other one, he's trying to explore that philosophical problem in such an interesting way. And you can sort of see it in the parents in that meeting, right? It's not that they understand the good at an intellectual level, right? They all know that the corruption is wrong, but it's sort of whether or not they can feel the ugliness of what they're doing. And they just reach that point where they're like, ugh, enough, you know, we're not, I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah, I think that is the fundamental thing. What keeps politics together? Honor keeps politics together and above all the shame before dishonor. You cannot keep a society together if there is not a shared shame around certain things. You feel that in certain things, you'd become a disgusting person if you participated or if you kept silent or what have you, if you didn't act. There are degrees to this, of course, but it is fundamental and it hits us inside. It's not something you can argue your way into or out of. It comes from a deep moral conviction that as human beings, we have a certain dignity that leads to certain expectations about the world and other people. And that gives rise to indignation, that gives rise to outrage. That's why we have a sense that we should defend ourselves. It makes us mad, but it also makes us talkative. We want to say why we're angry, we want to say who we're angry at and for what reason. And that begins to make it possible to have justice, to mm -hmm. give reasons and to make accusations and defenses and to begin to grapple in a practical way, in an immediate way, with principles of justice. Because at that point, we feel through the noble, through honor and humiliation, through pride and shame, through what we praise and what we blame, through what we feel we must do and what we feel we can't stand. In this way, we sense that this principle of justice is alive in me. And without it, I might not be who I think I am. Yeah. And so one feels at the same time attacked in one's innermost essence, but also possibly able to assert that innermost essence and make it public and share it with other people who might also feel this is not right. It can't stand. We won't let it. And of course, art especially has to articulate this connection between the invisible soul inside where indignation stirs and secretly we believe we deserve something good. Secretly, we believe that we have some dignity. And on the other hand, our public actions, the society we are caught up in that we might not be able to understand very well or which doesn't really listen to us. We're not usually in a position of authority. It might be hard even to believe you can get anybody's attention or that you deserve anybody's attention. You see, of course, especially in this movie, how most of these people are meek. They're pathetic people. They have no cowboy bluster. 
they're very peaceable. They wouldn't do all this violent stuff Americans do, but they wouldn't stand up for themselves or each other ever. Again, you have to understand the national character and realize what it is that you're working with and how these people can be led to some extent to outrage. And if your kid isn't dying or your neighbor's kid because of the evil, you don't care about it. That's on one side. And on the other side of it is, as you were saying about Havel, he sees some of the sophisticated people who enjoy their privileges, but can't do it and retain the bad conscience they should retain. They have to instead despise other people who are more innocent and braver. And so he tries to apply to that very successful man the dirt that he had smeared on these people who were just, you know, if you're a fan of Frank Zappa, you're probably half crazy. And they were more than half crazy. And they were these plastic people of the universe band were singing their bad music and screaming around about don't listen to the devil. And everybody knew they, they meant communism. Be careful. Of Czechs, they got punished. Are, Czechs are very defensive of the... Uh... Of the plastic people. I, I watched uh, my friend Jim Pontuso say a negative word about their music at the Czech embassy. And there were some people not, not too happy in the, in the audience. So. Uh, good for them. Like, I'm not Czech, <laughs> but I respect their defensiveness. That, that was a big deal that this bunch of crazy kids started a fight that they could not fight, much less fight to the finish. But they started a fight and other people turned out to want to be part of that fight too. That takes a kind of courage that uh, many people don't have. The movie, the teacher does a good job of showing that sometimes it's people who are marginalized, who have already felt that they have lost a lot and maybe they're resentful and they, just as they've suffered, who might speak up, who might shout. And therefore, respectable people will dismiss them, partly because we look down on the marginalized or the lower classes, but partly because we fear to share their opinions for fear of sharing their fate. If we start talking like these people, maybe we'll end up being like these people. And who the hell wants to be poor or your kids don't get to go to school or all sorts of terrible dramas? And how can I be sure that you're not actually guilty of whatever the regime accuses you of? So it's, it's very hard to stand up. And now, of course, we live in a world that is comparatively a paradise, however unhappy it makes us. There is no political police disappearing people in the middle of the night. There is no ideological based terror. We are free. But that doesn't make us particularly virtuous. And uh, I think everybody can nowadays look at this movie and see the tyrannical teacher and the ideology that allows this sort of wickedness to go on, even when people don't believe in it and they're just exploitative or evil because they want the humiliation. They want to see what kind of honor can I get? Well, you can only get this kind of honor. You humiliate other people, they defer to you, they lick your boot, and that makes you superior. And a lot of people want that too. Mm-hmm. And, and on the other hand, of course, you see the parents worried about their kids, the kids who have no idea what's happening and are trying to reproduce the moral things they learn from their parents, but realizing that it's not working and it's making them crazy. So all of that drama, I think, is immediately understandable to American parents who are worried about critical race theory, are worried about woke ideology being forced on their kids or people losing their jobs because they refuse to subscribe to the 1619 Project or some kind of nonsense like that. And you can see Americans react very differently in the fury with which parents helped elect this new politician, this Republican guy, Glenn Youngkin, as governor in Virginia, who has promptly proceeded to destroy the diversity, equity, inclusion, propaganda arm of liberalism in the Virginia state government. And maybe he'll do well, maybe he'll do right by the parents and the parents will stand up for themselves. And, you know, a good sign for America. Americans did defend themselves. They did stand up for themselves. They were angry and they did something about it politically, legally. 
legally in an organized way, that's good. But uh, it also shows you how vulnerable people really are. And uh, of course, in many, many places, tens of millions of Americans live under this kind of ideological dictatorship that they do not shuffle off. It's not a dictatorship because there are Soviet tanks in California or Chicago or New York. It's an ideological dictatorship because people consent to it, at least passively. Nobody shows up to vote, of course, like, you know, city elections in LA or in New York, you cannot get people to vote. You cannot get a quarter of the registered voters to vote, much less the population. They don't give a damn the same apathy you see in the movie you see here. Because like this love acts, they feel like, what dignity do I have? I mean, give me a break. What can I do about my kid? What can I do about my school? How easy has it been to have dictatorship in America at the level of your kid does not get an education this year and he won't get one next year? Super easy. We're not really much better than these people. We have a much better situation and certain habits. We're much more violent and more opinionated, and that keeps us free if we will fight. But there's no reason to believe that it couldn't happen to Americans to be publicly humiliated for their beliefs. I saw this scene in the movie where this parent, his daughter was driven to madness and almost committed suicide because of this teacher. And I immediately thought about what happened in Virginia, where some father showed up at the PTA meeting to protest that his daughter had been raped because of this transgender ideology. And he was taken out by the police as though he was a criminal for wanting to speak up for justice and for what happened to his girl. Did anybody do something for that guy? Did anybody there and then help him or later? Not, not really. Maybe the governor will single him out for a public apology and some kind of honor that shows that nobody can take back what happened to you, but the state can honor the justice of your cause so that you know that your fellow Americans are with you. I promise you it's not going to happen because people don't give a damn. It is a tough world we live in, and it's not just tough for Slovaks in Bratislava circa 83. It's tough in Virginia in 2022. So I think that this issue, what happens in a school is the education of the parents, not the children. What happens in a school is about what you will consent to, whether you will shut up about ideology imposed on your kids, because you just want success for yourself, for your kid. You want to not make waves. You want to get some kind of higher status in this competitive American society. And, uh, you know, if it should happen to be a mad ideology or if it should happen to humiliate kids, who cares? Again, let me give you another example of ideological dictatorship. At Ivy League schools in America, boys turn themselves into girls and say, like, sure, I competed as a boy in swimming contests for my school, but now I want to compete as a girl, like I'm right. transgender. And all of a sudden, they're setting records, humiliating all these girls. These are elite Ivy League schools. Does any of this athletic, you know, tough guy girls, they're all strong, independent women, stunning and brave. Do these 20-year-olds or 22-year-olds, whatever they are, do they have the guts because of feminism and liberalism to say, I am not competing against this guy who was a dude competing last year, and you cannot humiliate me by forcing me to lose in this clown show? No, none of them do, because they are cowards. Elite cowards, rich cowards, super prestigious cowards with all the political correctness in the world, not like these poor Slovaks who can't even dress properly, but all the worse for all their privileges and their lack of courage. Yeah. A pen example, some of the women on the swim team have started to speak out. It'll be interesting how that, how yeah, that like story hopefully develops. Hopefully them, yeah. their parents, they'll do something about it. Yeah. I think it's very important as we try to say that learning about the world that Havel is talking about, about Czechoslovakia, but about communism more broadly and ideological tyranny more broadly, it's important. But it's also worth considering in terms of the character of the people, the problem of the family and the children and education, the sort of ideological dictatorship that we can subscribe to just as easily as those people did and with none of their excuses. None of us fear Soviet invasion. That's not why we do it. We just do it because it's easier, it's more comfortable, and nobody really feels that, uh, you know, I should be a man here. We have a dangerous lack of toxic masculinity. (laughs) 
we need a lot of toxic masculinity for people to think, no, you can't humiliate my kids this way. My girl worked hard for this out of self-respect and because she believed people are not insane and might actually, you know, be decent. You're not going to take that away from my kid. Well, I don't know. I don't bet against America, but uh, I can tell you this much. It will be very ugly, as you were saying about the movie and about what Havel is doing. It will take a lot of ugliness to remind people this is humiliating. That we all believe in a certain beautiful vision of justice. And when we see it betrayed, it makes us go mad with anger and want to do something about it. That's as hopeful as I can get <laughs> in the circumstances. <laughs> well, it's hard to... I guess we're uh, not talking again about a about a very happy movie, so we shouldn't get, change the tone and get too hopeful at the end anyway. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think movies like this are important because, you know, we talked about Mr. Jones and, and movies about communism, which portray, you know, its crimes on the grandest scale. But I think movies that take this almost kind of microscopic look at everyday lives under communism are, are equally important and you know, r- remind people of the compromises and, and little moral compromises people were forced to make every day that resulted in a certain degradation that especially if you while you're experiencing it would have after a while hard to put your finger on, right? Yeah, I grew up with these stories. I knew small little stories about betrayals and miseries and failures and humiliations, but also the kind of shocking things that you think, oh my God, that you suddenly see the political police erupt in the family of a friend and you hear about things you'd have never imagined. If the choice is between not having a lot of suffering, but no moral seriousness and moral seriousness bought with suffering, I say it's much better to have had the suffering and get the moral seriousness. I think this art is trying like people tried to teach me when I was young. This suffering is real and it requires moral seriousness to understand it and to deal with it. Yeah, uh, because the suffering has happened. The only question is, will we get any more seriousness out of it or will it have been for nothing? Well, it's, it's interesting what you just said, too, about that kind of dichotomy you raised, because I've never written this up, but I think I've talked about it in class when teaching Havel. But I, I'd almost be willing to go so far as to say that Havel thinks he seems to imply that there's something more human about the totalitarianism of the 50s than the post-totalitarianism of the 70s and 80s. That, you know, for all the horror and just really disgusting idea that people would embrace an ideology that would lead to crimes on this grand scale, there is something human about people dedicating themselves to something. I mean, whatever you want to say about people like Lenin and the Bolsheviks, I mean, they sacrificed a lot for their revolution. There was a kind of humanness in that. Whereas if you contrast that with the party leaders of the 70s and 80s, there's just something kind of repulsive about these people who are kind of sleepwalking through these bureaucratic structures and kind of shrugging at the ideals and using them just as a way to perpetuate their own power. It's just repulsive in a way, in a more impressive way than the strident, enthusiastic totalitarianism of the 50s. I would say I don't want to push that too far because you don't want to uh, suggest that the totalitarianism that led to labor camps was something human about it. There's something deranged, a little deranged about that notion. But nonetheless, the contrast that you raise and that Havel points to, it's an interesting one to think about, you know, whether there is in fact something more recognizably human in the first phase. Yeah. First of all, just think about the moral political fact. Faced with a tyrant, you know this is evil. You might not win. And of course, it would be best to get rid of it before the tyranny is installed. But you can understand what leads people to that. And you can understand the phenomenon for what it is when you face a tyrant. 
Now, let communist success lead to decadence, as it did you know, with the destalinization and so forth. And all of a sudden, you do see this unremitting moral corruption that doesn't hinge on great crimes anymore, only on the moral debasement of everybody who no longer know that this is evil. They have sacrificed yeah. any dignity in the process. You cannot defend civilization on the basis of life at all costs. Life in the gulag, but at least it's life. You can defend the gulag, but not civilization. <laughs> So somewhere in there, you must see this radical problem. Better to see tyranny and fight it than to be in a situation where you can no longer see tyranny because you've been corrupted by it yourself. I believe everybody who sees these kinds of movies that we talk about will immediately recognize that we, like those people who are enslaved by Soviets, do not have the habits of going out in public and making public statements and getting action, organization, deliberation for common views of justice. We always hope somebody else will do it. We will delegate it, we will outsource it, we will offshore it. So I think we can recognize this lack of political agency, a kind of moral debasement that says, like, I have comforts, I have luxuries, why should I care about other things? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, see what happens to humanity if you don't. Right. Yeah, they got to be civilized. It's got to be self-defense. Yeah, there are a couple people at the meeting in the movie who who raise uh, raise their hand and just say, why, why am I here? I don't even know why I'm here, right? There's just... It's like, why are you bothering me? It's my night off or something like yeah. It's hard at work. I can barely get through the day. I don't need a local crisis to add to this. And I promise you, this is what America is now. There are tens of millions of people who are saying, I find it hard to get through the day to the evening and try to just unplug. I do not need a civilizational crisis. Like, I'm not going to deal with this. Yeah, I don't think you can explain something like electing a zombie president on any other basis. But in that way, it's kind of understandable. Again, it's a situation of decadence. As I said, in my case, I looked at this movie and I thought, this is exactly what I grew up with. But I'm sure most people, certainly not our audience, they have not had this experience. But in another way, the stuff we consent to as ideological dictatorship, just out of comfort or a kind of cowardice, we don't know about public things and nobody asked our opinion, so why should I bother? That's very real and it's very widespread. And I think that's why it spoke to us. This is one of the secret teachings I came up with, is that the reason there was so much interest in the West in uh, what was happening behind the Iron Curtain is that people felt that we're not living in that different world. The fact that the differences were so shocking, glaring, starting with the Iron Curtain, made it possible for people to hide from themselves a growing awareness that maybe they're losing their liberty too in the West. Mm -hmm. And I think this is also why people like Havel, when they wrote to the West, or Solzhenitsyn, of course, they said, we are not living in such a different world. Yeah, We're yeah. living with this political evil that is unremitting and unique. But what it means for civilized people to, to enter decadence when they no longer care about public affairs, your problem is much as ours, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he uses, the, the I think, something like the two species of consumer industrial society is, is what he talks about, Yeah. You people in the West aren't so different from us. And of course, Solzhenitsyn, in a way exaggerating, but perhaps you can excuse him, not just because he was the greatest man of that age, but because when he accused Americans of moral cowardice, he wanted to be instructive. He wanted to remind people, you should fight. You know, again, we look at this movie, The Teacher, 83, Slovakia, Bratislava, Central Europe. These people are about to end that entire world, that entire political system with all its drama and all its evil. They don't know it's coming. Well, you know who also didn't think communism was ever going to be over? Every liberal, every elite institution in America. So, you know, maybe they were cowards. Granted, this does not apply to Reagan or people who applauded him when he said, we win, they lose. That's the point here. This is an evil empire. We cannot get along with these people. They have to lose. 
there were such people. I don't want to damn everybody, and I don't want to damn every liberal either. But it is true, and it's of fundamental importance. Does that show moral courage on the part of a civilized superpower? I would say no. So I think, again, we are not the superior people we think we are. But I'm not hiding from the problem. And I'm grateful when I see art that gets at these problems in an intelligent, articulated way that also sparks our conversations. And so, as always, Flag, I'm grateful when you point me in the direction of these movies. I've learned so much from this and from our conversations that, as I said, you know, the suffering was real. The only question is, do we get any moral seriousness out of it? And uh, that's why I'm so grateful for doing this with you. Yeah, this has been a great, great conversation. Yeah, maybe we can take up uh, Rebek's first I think it's his first movie, Divide We Fall, at some point in the in the future. Yeah, it's funnier and it's a more hopeful movie at that and in an impressive way religious. So I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about it. Another movie I watched on your account and very prestigious, got to the Oscars 20 years ago. So I hope people will see it or have seen it already or have heard of it. Uh, it's a wonderful work. It's important to see. There's a kind of cinema that comes out of national agony, not from bored people who want to become celebrities or something like that. Not everybody is a brat. Some people lived through this sort of hell and thought, in a way, it's inspiring. That's the thing that totalitarianism inspired people to be heroes. Not, not saying that we should have a tyranny for the sake of heroes. I am against that. But I am for recognizing what happened and what it says about human beings that, as you're saying, you sometimes just recognize the nobility of the thing, the beauty, and who wants to destroy it. And you can't let it go. You can't say, well, I will get away. It's a fundamental human experience. It enriches all of us. Yeah, very good. Well, this has been great. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me on to this, and we'll do it again soon. Yes, let us do it again soon. And meanwhile, all the best, Flag. Thanks. 